0: Bismillah Rahman Rahim, Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, he was a salam and la ibadihi ladina staffa amma bad. Faudu belahim and a shaitan and a regime. Bismillah Rahman Rahim. In Allah, mala ekata who you nabi, ya ayyu aladina amanu, saldu alayhi, was seldom with the slima, recited al-sharif. Allahumma solly ala seed Muhammad, wa ala ali seed in a Muhammad, kama sollyt ala Ibrahim wa ala ali Ibrahim in the kahamidu majeed. Allahumma barik ala seyyidina muhammad wa ala ahli seyyidina muhammad kama barakta ala ibraheem wa ala ahli ibrahim innaka hamidun majid This is session number 62 of our series Islam's Greatest Personalities and part 11 of the seerah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. sallam and today insha'Allah we will speak about well, we'll continue speaking about the reconstruction of the Kaaba initially, and then, uh, if this time left, we'll go on to the next um, discussion. What I originally planned to do is continue speaking about the reconstruction of the Kaaba because the last lesson we weren't able to um, complete. There was a lot to cover, and uh, it was Salatul Maghrib. So then we said we'll carry on. Um, so we'll finish that off, inshallah, and then I was hoping to, you know, the models we've had upstairs uh, of the Kaaba of Masjid Nabwi I was hoping could have brought them down here and discussed. However, um, as I was calling Adilbai to arrange that, he said they've just come to collect it, and it's literally leaving the Masjid. Um, and it's it's not easy to put together. It's very very heavy lots of boxes and it needs to be preserved And It's very valuable because it's it's one of a kind. You, you don't get things like that And it's moving on to the next place. So I had to quickly improvise um, When I say improvise just basically move on to the next uh, topic uh, So inshallah, let's see how the time goes and how our journey continues inshallah from here uh, But the next topic is an interesting one as well. But yeah, inshallah, we can do that some other time. Those of you here who were here on Sunday morning of Salatul Fajr, we managed to go through some of it whilst we were upstairs. But I thought it would have been good because it ties in with what we're discussing uh, to see the uh, the actual model of the Kaaba as it was according to our dis- uh, discussion now, and then we could have discussed Masjid Nabvi as well. But uh, inshallah, some other time, uh, whatever Allah decides is best. So we were speaking about the history of the Kaaba and the different renovations of the Kaaba, um, and we spoke about who built it the first time and the second time and the third time, and we went through the whole history of the Kaaba from the beginning, from Prophet Adam salam's time, and we reached the time of just before the Prophet wasallam's time. We also spoke about the Prophet time. What happened? Why did he need to rebuild it? Uh, and all of that, that um, took place during his lifetime. Now, I'm just going to do a quick recap of some of the things we said towards the end so that you understand uh, what we'll discuss today. So, if you remember, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had a wish. And the wish of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was to uh, reconstruct the Kaaba so to demolish it and reconstruct it why what was the issue the Quraysh had just built it and the Prophet ﷺ was also part of it he took part why did he want to rebuild the Kaaba what was the reason so the part that they had excluded he wanted to include that because that was originally part of the Kaaba what else he wanted to bring the door, the entrance to ground level because the Quraysh had raised it very, very high. Anything else? Yes, there were originally two doors for the Kaaba, one to enter, one to exit. Quraysh had only made one door, so he wanted to add another door and there's one more thing. Well, it was remarkable that he remembered three but that's because he's taking notes and this shows the power of taking notes and why it's so important Uh, taking notes and writing things down otherwise 80% of what you hear once you leave the gathering leaves your mind it's proven it doesn't it doesn't stay so if you're really serious you 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 need the, the pen and paper is never going to become extinct no matter how much we advance And you can use your phone for notes as well. But pen and paper, it has, on on the human mind, it just has an impact. Even if you never open that book ever again, it will help you to retain that knowledge. Um, So one of the other reasons was that um, it it becomes smaller in size. So you'd already mentioned it by mentioning the Hatim, so that was included, so credit to you. Uh, but just rephrasing it that he, he, he that it was it wasn't the actual size and the way it wasn't the actual size is the part was excluded So yeah, you mentioned all three of them really so the Prophet sallallahu wanted to rebuild On the same model as Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam He expressed his desire. We spoke about this. He expressed his desire uh, but he didn't do it. Why did he not do it? Who can remind us? Why did the Prophet Wasallam, despite really wanting to do it, why didn't he do it? So, in one place, we find he said, "I don't have sufficient funds." So that was one. It's a big project. So that's one thing he clear, clearly mentioned. What else did he say? Hmm? Yes, brother. So people might start a war, a fight, because they think, what's going on? And what was the reason for that? Why did he feel that people might start up a fight? Because? Hmm? Um, so His concern wasn't about those who were part of building it. He wasn't really concerned about those. Because remember, they, they were much more senior that time had passed remember he's saying this to Aisha radiallahu anha. so this is much later on way after it's been remember he's in our story now he's not even become a prophet right when the Kaaba was reconstructed Aisha radiallahu anha doesn't even exist in the Mecca period she only comes in the Medina period later on right you know when she's more active and she's much more older and that's when he's relating this hadith to her um, so, and he, if he took her, the Hadith actually says that he took aisha and showed her, that, that would have been a, a time when they've actually present in Makkah. So it would have been like, Makkah was occupied for some years. So it would have even been in the early Medina days. It would have been in the later years. Either when, when they were there for Umrah or when they were there for the Hajj. So what was, what was the primary concern? Who, who can remind us of that? That's the one. Go on. Yes, the new Muslims. He, this is his primary concern. If it wasn't for your people, only recently have accepted Islam, I would have gone ahead and done this. So this is what he was worried about, because they didn't have the full understanding,'t have the. And a lot of times, people who are new or people who've just kind of repented, they're much more serious about things, okay? They take things like as as it is, and they're so much more serious about it. Um, whereas people who've been in Islam for longer, they understand the rank of things, and sometimes they might not, they understand, oh, this is not the intention. But other people who are new, they kind of take it very seriously. So this is something he expressed. So two things, one was the fear, of the converts or reverts, or whatever you want to call them, um, that they would kind of take to it very differently when it could start a fight between the people. And secondly, he said, he, uh, Muslim, he says, I don't have the expense that would allow me to carry out such a reconstruction. Then we went into speaking about Imam Bukhari establishing a chapter in his book. A chapter regarding those who leave a better thing. So something good and is better to do. But leaving something better. Okay, leaving something better. So in this case, the Kaaba was according to the Prophet said Allah was saying, it wasn't right. That's not how the Kaaba should be. Right? That's not how it's meant to be. It's supposed to be a different even today the way is that is not the way the Prophet wanted it to be However, did he do it? No. So he Imam Bukhari has a chapter leaving a better thing For for the fear of the people's low level of understanding Because Because of Why for fear of slipping into something worse? So you'd rather have the Kaaba as it is, as opposed to bloodshed and fighting and fitna, because that's much worse. That that is much worse. At the moment, it's working. It's working. Everything's fine. People are going around the Kaaba. People are doing the Hajj. It's perfectly fine. No one's got any issues with it. It's fine. It's working. But you change it thinking, Oh, that's the right thing to do. And people are not ready for it, ready for that change, then it's going to turn into a fire. I gave the example as well of something we did here a few years ago in Ramadan, thinking was a good thing. And that was in month of Ramadan last 10 days. We said, you know, witr um, salah we'll do after tahajjud. So people who do tarawih, whoever wants to go goes, whoever wants to stay stays. And then we have tahajjud here with jamaat. So witr should be ideally is a sunnah or better to do after tahajjud. So we have our witr jamaah afterwards. And what happened? Fireworks. Okay, explosion. People started arguing, fighting, this and that. And that's the last thing you want in Ramadan. Who wants to see that in Ramadan? Okay, so we thought that is, 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 we're trying to do something good. But the people weren't ready for it. So immediately we had to reverse it. We said, no, this is not the right thing to do. This is not how, when you're dealing with the community. Yes, yeah, so we have to give up something that's better sometimes. Fearing people's um, understanding. If people understood, then it was fine. We, it was a judgment that we made without thinking about what people will think. And it's a lesson you, you learn along the way. Otherwise, that will go into something much worse. And it, it started. Okay. Alhamdulillah, Ramadan was going so well, and all of a sudden, okay, people started fighting and this and that. And, and, and before it could become any worse, the announcement was made that from tomorrow back to normal, with the will take place at its normal time. And Alhamdulillah, it was fine. Maybe some years down the line once everyone is educated, who knows? But it's not, this is, this is in the Sharia, we have this, it's there. You know, it's not hard and fast rule. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't rebuild the Kaaba, although he really wanted to. But he made arrangements for it that, look, Aisha, let me tell you something. If later on in your time, I'm no longer around, let me show you. Let me explain it to you anyway. So th- this is important as well just because people have a lower level of understanding, that shouldn't be the driving force, that shouldn't be what leads us, that shouldn't be the dominant force and the power. We take that into consideration of course, but that means that we should carry on educating the people. (laughs) I can give you so many examples of this and how we get it very wrong sometimes. so, I remember being in a masjid and there, there was this rule in this particular masjid that, you know, the, the receiver. So, they, they switch it on for Fajr, for all of the salah, but not in Maghrib. In Maghrib, it stays off. Now, I used to find it really strange. I thought, well, if it's on for Fajr, Dahar, Asr, Isha, Jummah, why is he not on for Maghrib? So I I just found it really strange. And then I asked, I thought, what's the reason for this? Why does does it not go on in Maghrib? So they go, oh, there's one person in the whole community, one person, he um, or she, or it's a couple elderly, and they say that when the Adhan goes, they do their Maghrib straight away. so if it's on it disturbs them it disturbs them so because of which um, you know they shouldn't put it on so based on that a decision was made based on one individual C- can you see this is this is where you will not take into consideration this one individual based on everybody else because I think like, why would you deprive so many people uh, from hearing the Salatul Maghrib or any other things that would be shared after that because of one. I mean, they could just turn it off. They could turn down the volume. They could go and pray elsewhere in another room. Um, another thing that was said is oh, the reason why we don't switch it on at Maghrib time is because some people they follow the Imam from home uh, at Maghrib time. Now, you could apply that to all of the Salah. So, can you see where it gets a little bit funny? Because when you make one misjudgment based on something that's totally illogical, then you have to carry on these illogical kind of ideas. But that's not the right thing. Just because someone's doing something wrong, that doesn't mean you do the wrong as well. Okay, so this is the importance of educating. If that's the case, educate those that need to, the rest of the people that understand, let them continue benefiting. So, sometimes we go kind of backwards. We base our judgments and decisions on ignorance instead of on knowledge and education. Can you see? So, there's a way of dealing with things. So, on this occasion, the Prophet sallallahu left a better thing because of this. Um, and he took Aisha radiallahu anha and he said, Look, if your people want to rebuild it, then come, come along with me. I'll show you. The area which they left out and then he went. And this is the Sahih Muslim, the Prophet shows the area. And it's, 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 it's very, there's so many lessons that you can take from here. Now, who's heard this A'isha radiallahu anha? Now we move on to Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu anhu. Abdullah bin Zubair, we spoke about this towards the end, if you remember those of you who were here, just before the Adhan went off so abdullah bin zubair is the nephew of aisha radiallahu anha okay so a very close connection that's his auntie he's got access there's no issue of being a non mahram there's no issue of hijab Anytime he can go to her speak to her ask questions learn the deen directly from her many other sahaba did as well Even those who were not mahram learn from Aisha anha. But of course because they were not mahram It wasn't she wasn't as accessible as would be for someone who'd be a nephew like abdullah bin Zubay, anhum. Now time goes by abdullah bin Zubair, remember he is the nephew of Aisha Now Aisha was so young just trying to give you an idea of what kind of time period we're in. So the Prophet ﷺ has passed, the Sahaba have passed, meaning the, the, the Khulafa, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman Ali, it's gone past that stage, we're after that stage now, where Yazid bin Muawiyah, he has become the uh, leader, and Abdullah bin Zubair r.a refused to give him the pledge. For whatever reason, he didn't agree with him, uh, I don't want to give you the pledge. I don't think you're the right person. Okay? And so Yazid, he didn't agree with Abdullah bin Zubair not giving him the pledge, so he sends a big army. So he sends this army now to attack not just Abdullah bin Zubair, but the people and to force them now to give their allegiance and their pledge to him. So when they come to Makkah, they come with an army. The leader of the army is a man called Hussein bin Numayr, and they launched a full-fledged attack on Makkah al-Mukarramah. Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu anhu and the people that were with him, they uh, pitched up tents around the Haram in Makkah, and they were staying in these tents. And um, uh, they laid a siege around the Haram and they, were, they had these huge catapults and they were hurling these stones to attack the people. Um, and some of the stones, they were so large that they struck the Kaaba as well and they destroyed a major part of the Kaaba. So the Kaaba is now being damaged in its structure and somebody had lit up a fire in the tent in, in one of the camps as they would do for cooking, for heating, for light and the wind was blowing very severely on that day the tent caught fire so the fire breaks up. So on one side you've got these hurling stones coming into Masjidul Haram and damaging the Kaaba, hurting the people. And now you've got this fire, this raging fire as well. And part of the Kaaba causes, catches fire as well. So it's damaged with the stone. And then you've got the fire as well. And the precious wood, which we spoke about, remember the, the Quraysh, they made that deal with that, the, the ship that broke down and, and, and they went and they collected all that wood. So all of that teak wood, um, even that begins to burn down as well. The black stone fell from there, it cracked into three separate pieces and the structure of the Kaaba became so weak that even if a pigeon was to come and sit on it, stone would start crumbling down. So this is what we spoke about. Now, I think we stopped somewhere around here. So this tragic event took place uh, in the beginning of Rabi'il awwal 64 years after Hijrah. That's where we are exactly, 64 years after. Hijrah. So, we're looking at around 50 years after the Prophet Um or just a bit less than that. Uh, yeah, r- around that time. So, now, the people that were in Mecca, and the people of Syria. So remember Muslims are, there's loads of Muslims in all of Syria as well. Islam spread over there. You've got Yazid bin Muawiyah before him was, uh, Muawiyah radiallahu anhu, was a leader of the Muslims for so long. So we've gone down so many years now. Uh, The people of Makkah and the people of Syria were terrified with what happened. It was like what? Somebody's come and destroyed the Kaaba, And it's on fire. And these are like two Muslim armies kind of fighting with each other really. Um, some days later, on the 14th of Rabi' al-Awwal. So this happens on the 3rd of Rabi' al-Awwal. On the 14th, Yazid dies. So Yazid is now dead. Now the news of his death. At that time, they didn't have WhatsApp. Okay, you couldn't just instant message anybody. It would take time for messages to reach. So by the time the news of the death of Yazid reached Mecca, it was the 27th or towards the end of Rabi' al-Awwal. Okay, so he took some time. When Hussein bin Mumer hears that Yazid's dead, he thinks, Oh, right, what am I doing here? I don't need to be here anymore. So he retreats, takes the army back, withdraws the army, and they go all the way back to Mecca. Now, after this period was the Hajj, Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he left the Kaaba in that very pitiful state during the whole Hajj period. People are going to come from all over the world. There's so many more Muslims now. Okay, Islam has spread far and wide. So many more Muslims. So people came, um, and 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 the, it wasn't to incite the people against the Syrians, as some people have written. Okay, no, this wasn't the reason. The Hajj season sets in. Everybody sees the woeful spectacle of the Kaaba. And once the Hajj was over, everyone completed their rites. This is when he took advantage of this opportunity and he took people's advice and he said to the people, give me your counsel, give me your advice. I've got two options for you. Should I repair the Kaaba or should I rebuild it? These are the two options he gave. Should we just repair it? The parts that are damaged, just repair them or should we take the whole thing down and start all over again? So from amongst the elder now now elderly before was very young young lad young young one growing up and although he was very young he was very knowledgeable but now he's become of the senior elders none other than Abdullah Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu so he was still around so he said immediately he said leave it as it is don't make any like don't do it again now it's happened so many times just repair what needs to be repaired Um, Otherwise it's going to start off this vicious cycle Where people are just going to come They're going to knock it down, rebuild it again Knock it down, rebuild it again And the reason he gave was very important He says people will lose regard for the Kaaba This is what he said People will lose regard for the Kaaba Therefore my opinion is just repair it Don't rebuild the whole thing Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu anhu Listened to the people's opinions And he said look We've got some people saying repair it, some people saying rebuild it. Um, He says, I'm going to do istikhar. I'm going to do istikhar. Now, why didn't he just go for this option of repair it? He explains. He goes, I'm going to do istikhar, I'm going to do it for three days. I'm going to seek goodness from Allah. And the reason I'm going to do that is, he uses common sense. And he said, look, Anyone you know, anyone I know, whose house has been burnt down, no one just repairs it, and no one settles for that. Yeah, does anyone do that? If, you, if somebody, may Allah protect us all. Um, I know some people who've had this tragedy, and it's, it's dreadful. It's dreadful if it was to happen. May Allah protect us, keep all our houses safe. We don't realize how much of a blessing our house is until something like this happens. It's only then someone starts realizing we've been complaining all this time. Oh, this problem, that problem. Our house is like this. It's not big enough. Okay, it's too squashy, There's no space. It's like this. And you're looking at other people, but when something like this happens, you realize what kind of blessing you had. Um, so he says that I've never come across anybody whose house burns down or part of the house burns down and they just do a little repair. Because you know fire, the damage it does. He goes, everybody I know, would rebuild it again. Because it's, it's the damage that's done, the smoke and, and whatnot. So based on this, no one's content. So he's basically saying, why should we have that kind of standard for the house of Allah? That's what he was trying to say. If we don't accept it for ourselves, why, is it we, you know, why should we accept it for Allah's house? So he says, I'm going to the istikhara. So he did istikhara for three days. He continued doing istikhara and seeking good from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hadith of Sahih Muslim, after three days of doing this istikhara, he decided that he's going to dismantle the old structure totally, dismantle it. And he's going to rebuild the Kaaba afresh. This is Abdullah bin Zubair, radiallahu anhu, the nephew of Aisha, radiallahu anhu. And you can see the link because he's heard that hadith. And he knew that desire of the Prophet Sallallahu this was like an opportunity for him. He didn't cause it to happen. Okay, it happened. He's thinking, well, this is now a, a time to do this. By this time, Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala, also agreed. He says, I, I like the idea. It's, it's correct. Um, and with him, there were other Sahaba, Jabir ibn Abdullah. Because you might think, you know, what's going on? Times have gone on. What about the senior Sahaba? What are, are there any left? Well, Jabir ibn Abdullah radiyallahu anhu also agreed. Ubayd bin Umar radiyallahu anhu also agreed. Abdullah bin Safwan bin Umayyah radiyallahu anhu also agreed. And Miswar ibn Makhrama also agreed. Although Miswar ibn Makhrama, uh, he was uh, he was martyred. Um, so this discussion had been going on, and he was martyred by when when they laid the siege. Towards the end, um, he was martyred the day they received the news of Yazid's death, that is when Miswar Ibn Makhram was martyred, so lies were lost as well in this as well, it was quite serious. Now Abdullah bin Zubair had heard the hadith of the Prophet uh, from Aisha and that is when he said, today I've got enough wealth, wealth is not a problem, and number two, I don't fear that me doing this is gonna scare anybody away from Islam. The reverts, the converts, I don't have any worry. I don't think anyone is gonna have any, because he consulted the people. He already consulted the people, and the people were fine with it, and they they made a collective kind of discussion on this. Now, first of all, they made a plan to go and collect the stones that were gonna require for this reconstruction. Um, So they went and gathered the stones and the rocks that were required. And then when the time came to dismantle the Kaaba, most of the people living in Makkah left Makkah because they were scared. They thought, not this again. This has happened in the past. So everybody thought that whoever dismantles the Kaaba, what's going to happen is a divine punishment might come and something's going to happen. So they all left for Mina. So they went for Mina. Um, And even the few that remained, uh, who are going to be part of this, they stayed back. He said further back. Seeing that nobody was prepared to go and initiate the dismantling of this, of, of the Kaaba. Abdullah bin anhu himself who took a pickaxe, he climbed onto the wall of the Kaaba and he started to pull it down. And he also took with him some Ethiopian slaves. Why did he do this? Because remember, there is a hadith of the Prophet wasallam, that says that the Kaaba is going to be destroyed. And it's going to be destroyed by some Ethiopian slaves and the description has been given. So if that was to occur, it happened now. If, if, if it is this that people are fearing that it's going to bring about the day of judgment and the final hour, well, I'm going to take them with me. And if nothing happens, then there's nothing to worry about. So they come with him as well. And when people saw that nothing has happened, everybody came back. And they all joined until they totally dismantled the Kaaba and there was nothing left whatsoever of it and what did they see they revealed the foundation stones upon which Ibrahim built the Kaaba so this was very interesting he also called 50 notable people from the Quraysh to witness the original foundation Um, which was six cubits and a span. And the the measurements and everything have been noted by a scholar called Al-Azraqi. And he takes it from people that were present at that time. When Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu anhu, when he totally dismantled the Kaaba, these dimensions are written, they documented, written down. Now, Abdullah Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu, he sent a message to Ibn Zubair. He said, look, this is a project, it's going to take some time so this is very very good advice he gave him he says what, what i want you to do is there's no Kaaba anymore but people what does that mean no one's gonna come for salah no one's gonna come for umrah uh, if hajj comes in that time but people need to do tawaf right how's it gonna work so he says to him that mark out the site very clearly right mark it out very clearly and he says what you need to do is around the Kaaba." You need to make a structure out of wood, like a wooden frame and cover it with cloth, right? So that people know that the Kaaba was here, work in progress, construction is taking place. You've probably seen it now in, during COVID and how they block certain parts off or when sometimes we doing, they're doing some kind of work and you go to other places as well. You go there and it's sad because you can't actually see what's happening because there's work in progress okay Um and, and, and like, for example, those who've been to Palestine for about six or seven years, um, you couldn't see the inside of the Dome of the Rock because there was uh, scaffolding there for about six, seven years, they've been working. Now it's all been removed uh, and now you can see, for example, those who've been to Turkey will see in the Blue Mosque, uh, the famous Blue Mosque has got, most of it's got scaffolding. So there's only a small part of it that's open. A lot of it's got work taking place. Uh, prior to that, we had the, the, uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre had their major grand restoration work, uh, where they're just doing the restoration work, which they hadn't done for years and years. So at that time, you couldn't see much of it. So like that, the Kaaba basically had a structure around it, they put cloth around it. So people carried on, but they couldn't really see the Kaaba. It wasn't accessible, and they carried on working inside. This was the suggestion from Abdullah ibn Abbas Anhum now abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu ta'ala anhu wants to build the kaaba on the um the way ibrahim alayhis salam had it during his time so the original kaaba if you remember the original kaaba even during the time of ibrahim wasn't very high it was longer but it wasn't very high so Behind the curtain the construction continued. So one of the things he did uh, Contrary to the build of Ibrahim he raised it much higher than it was. So it was raised to 18 cubits high Um, But remember even though he raised it that high What they've done now is they've raised it higher, but they've made it longer So it looked a bit disproportionate because it was still very wide But even though they made it higher, it still looked quite short, right? And it it didn't look so well. So they raised it another 10 cubits higher and made it 28 cubits high in total now. So you can see how high they've gone. Um, Another thing he did was the three broken pieces of the Al-Hajar Al-Aswad. He took silver and he connected them using silver. Uh, And he uh, rearranged them uh, in the original place where it was. Um, The walls of the Kaaba at that time, they were made one meter deep. So even now when you see the Kaaba, you only see the exterior, okay? The model was really good upstairs. There were two models. And that would have given us an insight into the internal layers of how many layers there are inside. So we're not talking about the width now. We're talking about the depth of each wall. So he got them made one meter deep. So it's probably, you know, just... The, in the, the depth of the, of the Kaaba wall and inside the Kaaba um, he built two columns the Quraysh had six columns originally he placed in there two columns and they also made a skylight as well using a special type of marble that came from Yemen uh, so he uses Yemeni marble to make this skylight in the ceiling and then he made a wooden staircase which we spoke about last time as well so if you if this is if this is the Kaaba Okay, it would become a, a, a rectangular shape now, not a cube anymore because the Hakim area is also included. So Abdullah bin zubair radiallahu ta'ala who has made, rebuilt the Kaaba, The Hajj, Hajar al Aswad black stone is here. The door of the Kaaba would be here. Now, what's he done with the door? What's he done with the door? He's brought it down. Okay, all the way to ground level. And he's made another one as well opposite. So there's a door here. There's a door on that side. Uh, you have got the Hajar al Aswad, and then in this corner, inside the Kaaba, he's built a wooden staircase, uh, which the staircase is still there today. Not the same one, obviously, uh, but they've still got a staircase in that area to access the roof of the Kaaba. Remember, before the Kaaba never used to have a roof. The Quraysh are the ones who put the roof first. Remember, he's dismantled the whole thing uh, because it was damaged, so he's rebuilt it. Um, so. Although he's tried to make it on the pattern of Ibrahim A.S., There are certain changes for example in the height and in the roof but besides that and obviously there was no staircase at that time so there's some additions but the desire of the Prophet for the Hatim to be included and the door to be on ground level and to have one entrance and one exit those were the things that he was aiming for which Alhamdulillah he managed to achieve so when he completed, he perfumed the whole of the Kaaba, uh, inside and outside. They used a Coptic cloth from Egypt, uh, and that is what was draped over the Kaaba. And he gave thanks to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala upon the completion of the project. Which year was this? 64 after Hijrah. No, that was in the year 64 after Hijrah. Sometime later, in the year 73 after Hijrah. So, nine years later. Abdullah bin Zubair, we'll probably speak about this, inshallah, if time allows When we go to finishing the seerah, and then we speak about the Sahaba, and we get to Abdullah bin Zubair and his whole life story, because it's a whole story in itself. Uh, but he was martyred in Makkah al-Mukarramah. Abdullah bin Zubair, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he was martyred in Makkah al-Mukarramah, and surprisingly, Makkah now comes under the control of who? Anybody know? Anybody know? No Yazid. Yazid's gone. Abdul Malik bin Marwan is is the Amir al Muminin, right? But he's he's in Syria, Palestine. He's in those lands. Hajjaj bin Yusuf is his governor. So, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, okay, very righteous person, great scholar, very good amir. However, his governor isn't, right? Hajjaj bin Yusuf, known as a notorious bloodshedder, he martyred and he killed so many Sahaba, so many Tabi'een, thousands, mercilessly. He was the governor of Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. So, he now comes. He takes over Makkah al-Mukarramah. When he comes to Makkah al-Mukarramah, um, he looks at the Kaaba and he thinks, "What's this?" Because they've been to Makkah, they knew what the Kaaba looked like from the time of the Prophet sallallahu When he sees it now, he thinks, "Hey, like, where's like that? Where's that piece that was outside the way the Prophet sallallahu saw it?" Why is it different now? What's he done? And they didn't like Abdullah bin Zubair, radiallahu anhu. Uh, so he requested permission from Abdul Malik ibn Marwan to change it back. Um, so Hajjaj bin Yusuf writes to Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. He look, I've come to Makkah. And he, the, way, the way he uses words like, look, Abdullah bin Zubair has made a mess. The Kaaba. He's, he's disfigured the Kaaba. If, if someone uses words like this, okay, it's sentimental, it hurts you. And this is the message he sent back and said, Look, he's totally disfigured the karma, he's made a mess. And, you know, Amir al Mu'minin, give me permission, I want to change it back. Um, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, he receives the letter. And again, when you receive a letter, you're going to read what it says in there. So, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. Simply he writes back saying look you're speaking about a mess that has been made by Abdullah bin Zubair. We've got nothing to do with it That's not on our shoulders. We didn't do it um, So he says leave the height You're saying that he's made it really high. And he says leave the height Just whatever additions there are which you feel are, have, you're saying it's been changed from the way the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi endorsed the Kaaba and it's gone against the prophetic way Just change those things. So you're saying the Hatim isn't there anymore. Well, make the Hatim and close the door, the second door because that wasn't there at the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's time. Thus Hajjaj proceeds accordingly and he makes the changes. This is in Sahih Muslim. Now, you might be thinking, well, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, why would he agree? The reason he agreed, he didn't know the Hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu that hadith hadn't reached him regarding the Prophet Sallallahu desire to change it back. When he heard the hadith that the Prophet Sallallahu expressed his desire very clearly and explicitly to Aisha Radiallahu Anha, Abdul Malik Ibn Marwan really regretted his decision. He was holding his stick in his hand and he just kept scraping the ground. You know, sometimes when you're in deep thought and you just, he was just scraping, he's thinking like, what have I done? How could I have done something like this? He felt so bad, he felt so horrible about this. And he just, and and he said, had I known of this hadith, I would have never given permission to Abdul Malik ibn Marwan to go and change it. I didn't know. He did it thinking, the Prophet ﷺ endorsed the way the Kaaba was. Why did somebody come and change it and make changes? So he just put it back to the way it was in the prophetic era. Um, and he also had to go out Hajjaj ibn Yusuf as well and he condemned him for what he did. So just to clarify, I mentioned this because this becomes a target on people like Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, who was a very notable person, respectable person, pious righteous scholar done some great work the commissioning of the Dome of the Rock that we see in in, in Palestine that was commissioned by Abdul Malik Ibn Marwan Um, the Musalla Tibli again uh, Abdul Malik Ibn Marwan and then his son Walid Ibn Abdul Malik so think about it Abdul Malik Ibn Marwan has a huge role in the Kaaba that we see today okay that is done through the commissioning of Abdul Malik Ibn Marwan What you see in Masjid Al-Aqsa in Dome of the Rock, that is through the commissioning of Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. Um, But yeah, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf was a a not so good person. He killed many, 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 many Sahaba and Tabi'een. But yeah, I mean, you've got that on one side and then you've got the other side where the Kaaba that we see today, that has been kind of that layout that we see now, that was then turned back by him. Uh, And... Also, we hear that in the Quran, you know, you've got the i'rab in the Quran, the Fatha Dhamma, Kasra, Zabar, Zayr, Besh, We hear that Hajjaj ibn Yusuf is the one who introduced these, because in the previous days, uh, the Arabs, they were able to read Quran without the use of them. And they knew what the words meant. Uh, but later on, as Islam spread, a lot of non-Arabs were also reading the Quran. Also, many Arabs who didn't know uh, the correct manner of reading. To assist them, this is why these uh, diacritical marks were then added in later on to make it easier for people. They were already there in the sense that without them being there, people knew how to recite it. So it's not something that was added. It's not an addition. Addition, okay. Um, this is why people like Imran Hussain, who comes out with this kind of rubbish about the verse of the Quran, and diacritical marks, and people added, and no one added it in. Okay, him, him claiming what he claims, he, he doesn't believe in the, the. He's saying basically that every Quran that we have is, is wrong. And that's a very bold statement to make. You actually lose your Iman by saying that it's a very and he's not said it for one thing He said it in other places as well. So it's not a light issue. It it just sounds very rosy and But in reality, it just shows also the ignorance of how far uh, From the truth and reality the understanding is because remember the word is the word Whether it's written or not is because we don't know how to pronounce it, but the pronunciation is Quran. That's the Quran it says, Wa innahu, if Quran says, Wa innahu la ilmun lisa. so that pronunciation ilmun, is always going to be ilmun, whether somebody draws a line underneath it or not. That was only added to make it easy for people to read it. Uh, so, well, well, let's move on. So, after Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, um, his son is Walid ibn Abdul Malik. Walid ibn Abdul Malik is the one who completes the uh, the jami al-qibli so when you go to Masjid al-Aqsa and you, the Imam leads the Salah from the the prayer area at the front which is called Musalla al-qibli so this was completed by Walid ibn Abdul Malik the son of Abdul Malik uh, bin Marwan uh, but Walid ibn Abdul Malik um, he passes away his brother Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik he then becomes the Khalifa so this is now, we're looking at 96 after Hijri. 96 after Hijri. Uh, Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik. He becomes a Khalifa. And he comes for Hajj. Remember, they're in, they're in Syria, they're in Palestine, they're in those lands. So when he comes for Hajj, he expressed his desire. And he said that, had it not been for the work of Amir al-Mu'mineen. Who's he referring to Amir al-Mu'mineen? Who's Amirul Mu'mineen he's referring to? Anyone? His father. Who was his father? Abdul Malik ibn Marwan. So he's referring to his father as Amirul Mu'mineen. He goes, Hadn't it been the work of Amirul Mu'mineen? Because what did he do? It was under his. Instruction that was a Kaaba was turned back to the way it was during the Prophet's time So because after he found out that his father regretted it and he found out that his father had the hadith later on He wanted to change things back again but he thought because of Amir al-Mu'mineen who's my father because he was part of turning it the way it is now um, I would have loved otherwise I would have loved to uh, change the Kaaba according to the plan of Abdullah bin Zubair anhu. Thus he left it. He didn't make any changes to it. Now we go fast forward. So that was during the Umayyad rule. After the Umayyads came the Abbasids. During the Abbasid, who's the most famous person you hear in the Abbasids as a ruler? Hmm? The Salaudin comes later on in the Ayyubid period. Harun Rashid, when you say Abbasid period, you think of Harun Rashid straight away. Harun Rashid, you hear about Harun Rashid a lot. He was a very pious person, intelligent, many, many stories. He had a very good connection with the ulama and the scholars as well. So Harun Rashid, he wanted to rebuild the Kaaba according to the structure of Abdullah bin Zubair. He had money and he had the clout, he could have done it. So, and this was the great thing about these people—they consulted the ulama. They were in close companionship. They they always took advice. So he went to Imam Malik, rahmatullah Ali and he took his advice. And he says, "Oh, great Imam, um, I plead to you in Allah's name. Uh, I want to take advice, and I want to change the Kaaba and make it like it was." Uh, in the time of Ibrahim and according to the plan of Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu anhu. Imam Malik pleaded with him and he says, please, O Amirul al-mu'mineen, I beg you, do not do this. Otherwise, the Kaaba is going to become like a toy in the hands of the rulers. Today you're a ruler, let me change the Kaaba. After you somebody else will come, no, I want to change it back. Somebody else will come because you're going to start off a trend at the moment. Look, before him what happened, Suleiman ibn Abdul Malik wanted to do it, he didn't do it. And it's been a number of years now, come on, we're looking at the Abbasid period now. And no one, no significant change was made to it. And he told him, look, this is going to take away the reverence of the Kaaba from the hearts of the people. People are going to just think of it as a joke. So, therefore, leave it. We don't keep chopping and changing things. It's there, it's running, it's, you know, it works, leave it. It's like they say, if it's not broken, you don't need to fix it. So, leave it. Um, So, this is the Basid rule. And um, I, I thought I'd just mention something, actually, regarding this point about Abdul Malik bin Marwan. You know, Abdul Malik bin Marwan, he kind of went along with what Hajjah ibn Yusuf wrote to him. And this is very human. We can be quite judgmental sometimes um, about people, especially when it comes to pious people. Um, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan was a notable person, Hajjah ibn Yusuf wasn't, but Abdul Malik ibn Marwan was. And this is very normal. It happens, you've got senior scholars, senior mashayikh, respectable people, and then the people that are under them. Sometimes can be like the most corrupt people around right that happens or they 're not so good people, and it kind of creates question marks in our head, thinking like why don't, why do they even give them the time of the day why why don 't they just like distance them or why do they include them? Why do they big them up so much if they 're if they're so corrupt but in this day and age where we've become less resilient, less tolerant and things really affect us very quickly. I think it's very important to discuss this topic because we're seeing this more and more. So I I think this gives us a good uh, precedent there, where Abdul Malik ibn Marwan is a notable senior person, uh, pious person, under him he's got someone like Hajjad ibn Yusuf. Now. Sometimes these individuals meaning these not so good people um, They're very charismatic. They are very clever very um, Sly as well and they've got their way. They've got their way. They've got their words. They've got their certain style Maybe in, when they in the presence of these pious people notable people they have a very good uh, sort of Kind of behavior very good character a very good image they create and the persona is very different in front of them and you know they've never show that side um, especially if it's always a, 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 a an approach of khidmah of service um, of helping out then you know why wouldn't you if somebody is very charitable in that way and helping out and assisting and supporting now what happens in these scenarios generally is it depends who gets there first. This is how it works. It's who gets there first. And I know from an Islamic perspective, if somebody comes to you, okay, if for example Adam comes to me and he tells me something about someone or something, okay, about Iqbalbai for example, my job is to go to Iqbalbai and verify and hear his side of the story as well. But we're human beings. We're human beings. We don't always end up doing that. We should do that, but that doesn't always happen. And in times of the past, right? Uh, in the past, for instance, take this scenario: Abdul Malik ibn number one just hears one side in a letter from Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. Look what Abdullah Zubair bin Zubair has done. Abdullah bin Zubair doesn't even exist anymore. Okay? He's made a whole mess. He's disfigured the Kaaba, and especially when you hear something like that, you can't think, "Whoa!" Like it knocks you back and you think, whoa, really? How, how, how could he have done something like that? And then you become sentimental, you become emotional, and then you say things, you do things. So, this is how it works. So, if for example, sometimes you might hear some respectable sheikh or pious person has given a decree or made a decision or said something about someone or something, a lot of times this is what's happened. Where it just... Who's got to them first? Someone's got to them first. They've given a twisted story and they've made them believe it. Now that doesn't mean that the shaykh should not clarify. No shaykh is beyond the sharia. Okay, <laughs> regardless of who it is. However, we have to understand that they are human beings. The Prophet ﷺ came out to the people and he said to them very, very clearly. What did he say? Do not bring people's complaints to me. He said this very clearly. Do not come to my house and complain about people to me. Don't. Don't tell tales. Don't come to me and start telling me about people. Why? He says, when I come out of my house, I want to see everybody with a clean heart. What's he trying to say there? That's, that's powerful. Despite him being the Nabi of Allah. He's telling us if you come and tell me something about someone I'm gonna feel a certain way in regards to that person whether or not I verified it or not It's just once you hear it. You're a human being so he just cut it out. He said look just don't tell me anything Don't tell me things about don't relate to me people's stories and he's done this and she's done this just stop doing it so If someone like the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is saying that I'm worried that I come out And I want to be like, I want to look at everybody and not have anything against anyone in my heart. So the people of today, despite them being scholars or pious people, if if people are going and kind of brainwashing them and feeding them information and stories, and then they were to make a judgment, we need to be a bit more tolerant and understand it from that perspective. Is everyone understanding what I'm trying to get at? Okay, I'm not saying that they shouldn't verify information. I'm not saying that they're okay in doing that. But we have to understand the bigger picture and allow that room for hu- being human. Okay, if someone's, a, someone's a, a, a scholar, that doesn't mean they're not human anymore. And we have to allow for that. And It doesn't just apply to scholars, it applies to anyone of a position. Um, you know they could kind of make a judgment it could be your a manager at work for example or a boss or, okay or, or, or CEO of a company for example and it, someone might have said something to them and that's the news that they've got they've not heard otherwise and there's no reason for them to doubt it okay yes we should check but we're human beings we don't do that and we should and this is why sometimes certain things are said and done Had they known the reality like Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, later on he regretted it. Had I known of this hadith, I would never have told uh, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf to change the Kaaba back to as it was. Okay, so this is what happens in the Abbasid rule, and Harun al Rashid does not make any changes to the Kaaba. Then we come to the Ottoman period, and the ninth Ottoman Caliph, Sultan Murad Khan. In the year 1040 after Hijrah, 1630 CE. So 1630 CE, 1040 after Hijrah, he rebuilds the Kaaba. Now you might okay. think, what, what, what happened to him? Why did he build the Kaaba? Well, there was a strong flood that happened uh, in Makkah al and it tore away a lot of the uh, parts of the Kaaba. Uh, significant damage and he rebuilt it exactly as the way Hajjaj ibn Yusuf did. Um, as we see it today basically, it was rebuilt exactly the same. The only change was decorative changes. So in terms of its structure, it was, and, and that's how it is till today, remain till today. So after that date onwards, um, there has been renovations, but not the whole structure where it just gets totally taken down to the foundation and rebuilt again. So 1630 was the last major uh, rebuilding of the Kaaba. Um, In terms of the height, I don't know if this is accurate, but I've got here 14 meters. Does that sound right? I don't don't know. It's much bigger than you think for those of you who have not been. Uh, For those who've been, you know, if you've never been, um, it's much bigger than what you think, what you perceive it to be. You can see on Haramain live and you can see pictures of it, but it's only when you go they think like, well, um, so that was in regards to the Kaaba, and that's where we end on that. Now we've got some time remaining, so inshallah we'll, we'll go on to our next discussion as well. So we are heading now towards, we're heading towards the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi wa receiving prophethood, but we've not got there yet. We've got some things to discuss prior to that. And what we're going to discuss now, is we're going to speak about prophecies um, about the coming of the last prophet and specifically prophecies that were uh, made and given in the previous scriptures. So we're going to speak about the Torah. We're going to speak about the Gospel, the Injil, We're going to speak about the Psalms of David, Zabur, We're going to speak about some of the works and the scriptures of the Zoroastrians. Some of the scriptures of other faiths like the books of the Hindus, for example how the mention of the prophet sallallahu wasallam's arrival was clearly and very categorically mentioned in those books and it's not just, um, just a, it's not just like a mere mention there's discussion there's description um, that was there now the people of the book when we speak about people of the book we're speaking about the yahud and nasara but the yahud in particular They had all along been waiting for the arrival of the last Prophet. They'd been waiting. Now, how did they even end up in Medina? Why do you get tribes of Yahud in Medina Munawwara? How did that even happen? That happened because they migrated. Because they had read that the last Prophet is going to come to these lands. Otherwise, they weren't from those lands. How did they end up so many of them in Medina when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam arrives? Yes, they were were driven away later on and expelled from Jaziratul Arab. Okay, afterwards uh, and now they're coming back. But what happened at that time? How did they end up there? You know, that itself, that itself answers. Okay, any questions? What were they doing there? They weren't from that land. They were there because they knew, they believed, they were convinced that Allah's prophet is going to come. They were told where he's going to come, what he's going to look like, what, what features he will have, what kind of people he will associate himself with. All of that was there. So, now what happened was, they turned out to be his worst enemies. Strange, right? The people that were anticipating his arrival the most, more than anybody else, become the worst enemies and the greatest opponents. Why? Because this was driven by racial feelings. How bad it is. Racism, very bad. This is, you can see just because the ethnicity was different—that's it, nothing else. That—that's the only thing that drove that hatred. Otherwise, they knew. And that's why, from amongst the Yahood, only few accepted. I mean, how many names do we even know? We always, everyone, Abdullah bin Salam. You just keep hearing Abdullah bin Salam. Why do you keep hearing Abdullah bin Salam? Because there aren't many other names. There may, may have been others, right? I'm not saying they weren't, but there's not loads. Only few of them actually accepted because they were able to see through the racial hatred, right? So it's a very deep-rooted racial hatred based, based on ethnicity that why not one of us? How can somebody else? Why not one of us? Why not one of our people? And that's what it was rooted on. And by the, before the arrival of the Prophet within that community, certain things had already become very common, like deceit, treachery, backstabbing, being unreliable, breaking of promises and agreements. Um, that was something historically you can find that. We're not making things up just to make one people look bad or anything. We're just mentioning what's there and if they will say that themselves. And later on, when the Prophet ﷺ arrived, we found that these were the most people that were the, the worst enemies. And they caused a lot of trouble for the Prophet ﷺ. But they did it in a very deceitful way. Once their treachery and their deception was exposed, and it was very, very clear and in the open, that they had no mission but to assassinate and kill the Prophet ﷺ. And they tried it on so many occasions. Once that was discovered, what happened? They were, dis- they were expelled from Jazeeratul Arab. Unlike we find in the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to expel them from the Jaziratul Arab. And this is, there's a reason, that's the reason there. Where if you've got people within you who are just out there to kill you, to annihilate you, and they're just speaking up against you despite your kindness, despite your warmth, despite you welcoming them, despite you giving them rights, and so many things were tried and tested, but none of it worked. They poisoned the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Remember the the meat that comes, and the Prophet sallallahu ate, ate from it, for me, and then he took it out, and then later on that did affect him. Black magic was done to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So many things like that. Um, they slandered his wife. Okay, all of these, there's so many things that happened. Um, So many attempts to assassinate him and there were loads of things that were happening all of the time. Um, Thus this takes place. Now once Islam started to spread, so removal of them was the benefit of the world because now they can carry on doing the work without these obstacles and hindrances in place. Now, Islam started to spread. The Prophet Sallallahu passes away, the Sahaba take over and Islam started to spread. It went to as far as Syria for example. Now note the names of the places I'm going to mention. Syria, Palestine, Egypt, Yemen, Jordan, Sudan, Tripoli meaning Libya, Algeria, Morocco. What do you notice about these countries? What could you tell me about? They speak Arabic. Were they? We've already spoken about Arabia. Our when we when we started like many many weeks ago, we spoke about what Arab who are Arabs, what is Arabia, right? And where did the first Arab come from? Did any of these countries have anything to do with being Arab? No. So what religion did all these people generally follow? They were Christians. These were hardcore Christians. Right, But they're so impressed, all of these countries, Syria, Palestine, Jordan, Libya, Egypt, um, all of these countries, Morocco, all of these, this was all Christians. They were so impressed by the conduct, the character, and the just Muslim character, Muslim conduct, Muslim dealings. They were so impressed by it, that not only did they embrace the faith, they embraced the language. And how much did they embrace the language Arabic? They embraced it so much that they forgot their own. And now we consider all of this as the Arab world. That wasn't the Arab world. Those countries were not Arab. Now, If, if, you, if you look at somebody from Egypt, okay, we think of them as Arabic. This Africa, okay, we call them Arabic. Okay, Palestine, we call them Arabic. Okay, uh, you look at Morocco, for example, we call this is Africa as well. We call it Arabic. Arabic? How did they become Arabic? Okay, oh, we might have not thought of this up until now. But they, they, these are Christians, okay? So these have all accepted Islam. Imagine a massive, massive revolution in the Christian world where they've got this desire. They were so impressed. What they had wasn't fulfilling for them. It wasn't sufficient. It wasn't answering their questions. It wasn't doing much. As soon as they came across Islam, they thought, wow, this is the religion. They took it on so wholeheartedly that they took on the language and they forgot even themselves. They forgot their own language and Arabic till today has become their language. Now, what do you think that would do to the hearts and the minds of christians in other parts of the world who are still christians <laughs> that that wouldn't it wouldn't sit very well okay they would just like the first group of people were burning now these people are burning thinking what is happening here so this is why now towards the fifth century towards the end of the fifth century uh, hijri uh, which is coinciding with the end of the 11th century uh, AD, European Christians, what happened to the European Christians? What did they do? Remember these, what they do, European Christians are now invading Syria and Palestine. Okay, what we know as the Crusaders. So these are brainwashed and people who've been riled up against those new Muslims, who are your original Christian brethren in Syria and Palestine who've left your religion. These are the priests from the top. Okay, they're going crazy. They're just driving people. They're just creating this hype inside all the people, that look at those people, look what they're doing. Okay, you need to go and fight them. You need to go and kill them and take back the Holy Land because they've taken our holy land and prior to this there was another and during the Fatimid period there was one of the Fatimid rulers uh, I think Hakim his name was what he had done is he kind of went and destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, which was a, a good an, a, a move I think that kind of instigated the whole crusader movement as well obviously the holiest place in Christendom to kind of annihilate it and destroy it. Islam has never taught that And he went and did that, and then that instigated the whole crusader movement. And then they went and they were very barbaric, very merciless. You will not find anything similar to this, parallel to this, in history. I mean, there have been massacres, but this was really brutal. 70,000 Muslims killed just inside Masjid al-Aqsa, and their crusader historians, you'll write and you'll find in the books today as well. Because we would walk past in the streets and you'd find a whole heap, a pile of human skulls, of arms, of feet, of hands, Muslim hands, a whole mountain heap of just hands. And they just, they were merciless. And they they totally just destroyed everything. There's a lot of hatred there. And it was religious fanaticism, you can call it. It it wasn't really based on religion, meaning the true Christianity. Um, it It was a corrupt version put to them. And told to them that look this is you have to go and you have to fight and they killed a lot of Jews as well they killed a lot of Christians as well any Christians that didn't agree with their mission a lot of Christians were killed by the Crusaders the Knight Templars as well Templar Knights um, so this was a huge carnage that was carried out um, but the main cause of it was their hatred towards Islam uh, anybody who's watching the Turkish serials Um, we'll see a lot of this you can see uh, how a lot of the battles that are happening between the Ottomans um, uh, and even prior to Ottoman before in the time of al Ghazi and then after him in the time of Uthman um, you see all of these different um, Christian groups coming from different places and the hatred that they've got towards Islam and mainly it was a false propaganda that was initiated by some of the priests and Mainly the distortion this is what we're coming to the this why why all that hatred because we, we saw a whole world of Christians When they came across Islam they fell in love with it Why is it that you've got a whole world of I mentioned so many countries to you? And they just like they loved Islam and they embraced it, but then you've got all of these Europeans That they riled up with hatred why this is the key point that we're getting to it's because of the priests at the top who made all the distortions, the alterations, the changes in the scriptures. This is what caused all of this. Because as a look, look what our books say regarding them. Whereas the, the, the Gospel, the Injeel is speaking about the Prophet ﷺ and his arrival. Is speaking highly about the people, meaning who will be the Muslims. And so did the other books as well. So because they did all of this, they were able to create this propaganda, get into the minds of the people, corrupt them, create this deep-rooted hatred in their hearts, and then charge them uh, and and get them to go out into battle and we're going to save our holy land. So in every age, in every era, there are people of conscience. There are people who see beyond the propaganda and they they speak without fear of Fear or favor, either way, right? Um, there's a person called Thomas Carlyle, 1795 to 1881. Um, he was a famous writer, famous historian, famous philosopher. He addressed the British clergy in on 8th of May, 1840. 8th of May, 1840, and this is what he said. I'm just going to read it to you. This is what he says. Belief is great life-giving the history of a nation becomes fruitful soul-elevating great so soon as it believes these Arabs the man Muhammad meaning Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wa sallam and the one century it is not as if a spark had fallen one spark on a world of what seemed black noticeable sun but lo, no, the Sun proves explosive powder blazes heaven-high from Delhi to Garenda I said the great man was always as lightning out of heaven. The rest of men awaited for him like fuel and then they they too would flame. So he spoke the truth. He said it as it was and he could see the revival in the world where the Christians of the world as soon as they received Islam for the first time in in that manner, that's the first time Islam went to these people, they wholeheartedly accepted it in droves and Islam started to spread. So, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at prophecies in previous books and previous scriptures and how the wording has been warped and twisted deliberately to hide the truth. Um, this is what we're going to be doing, inshallah. How many minutes do we have left? Seven. Okay. So, to understand this, first of all, Allah is the creator of the heavens and the earth. We accept this. And He's the absolute ruler of the whole of the universe. Allah alone has the right to prescribe the code of conduct. How the world should run? How things should go in this world? Only Allah has the right to prescribe that. And as a result of this, one of the things he does, he sends messengers, he sends prophets. And the last, he decided, this is his code of conduct, because the universe belongs to Allah. He decided that the last prophet is going to be Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam not jesus not moses we respect all of the prophets but the last prophet is prophet muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam we honor all of the prophets hadith of sahih bukhari sahih muslim beautiful hadith you might have not heard it before the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says well he says all of the prophets are like step brothers very interesting analogy. The Prophet says, "All of the prophets are like stepbrothers, like they're from the same father, different mothers." Right? So he says we are all from one, meaning our deen is one, our faith is one, our mothers are different. Meaning the the the. The laws, the minor laws might be different in the religion of Musa salam and Isa, alayhi salam, Ibrahim alayhi sallam, Daud alayhi s zakariya alayhi salam, Muhammad, alayhi salam. some of the laws will be different. So we've got different mothers. But our father is the same, meaning our deen of La ilaha illallah, the methodology, the original faith is the same. So he says that all of the Prophets are like stepbrothers with different from different mothers. Our father is the same got different mothers. So our faith is one. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, another thing which is very interesting, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, He took a pledge, Quran mentions this. Allah took a pledge from every single prophet. And this is in the Quran, Allah took a pledge from every single prophet, from Adam to Isa, a.s. every single prophet that came, Allah took a pledge and a promise from every prophet. And three things. He says, Look, you're the prophet now. He told Dawood, a.s. for example, you are the prophet now. However, there is a prophet of mine who's going to come at the end. His name is Muhammad. sallallahu If he was to emerge in your time, what will you do? Allah says to every prophet one by one, individually one by one, he said, look, there's a beloved prophet of mine who's gonna come at the end. However, if this prophet was to arise in your time, I want you to give me a pledge and promise me three things. Number one, that you will believe in him. Number two, you affirm his message. And number three, you will help him in his mission. And every prophet said, Oh Allah, we promise we will believe in him, we will affirm his message and we will help and assist him. Every Prophet was made to take this covenant. One Ali ibn Abbas, both of them say individually, Allah took this covenant from every Nabi. This is in the Quran. Allah says that they were in Surah Al-Shura, they were made to take a pledge and this pledge was binding upon them. That if Prophet Muhammad appeared for example, at the time of Isa Alayhi Musa they would put their hands up. They would have to believe in him. They already made this contract with Allah before. Look, you're the Prophet. However, if he comes, you take a step back. Now you understand when all of the Prophets on the night of Mi'raj, they stood back. Okay, and the Prophet said, Alaihi led, because they, oh, every Prophet had given this covenant. Quran mentions this very, very clearly. And this is why for example, Ibrahim Alayhi salam made that dua. When he made it, رَبَّنَا وَبَعْثِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُمْ يَتْلُوْ عَلِيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِمْ وَإِنزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِهِمْ Why is Ibrahim Alayhi Ismail making these duas for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? Allah had taken a pledge and a covenant from every Nabi. That look, you're the Prophet. However, my greatest Prophet is Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. If he appears in your time, you have to promise me three things. That you're going to believe in him, you're going to affirm his message, and you're going to support him. So this is why Ibrahim is making dua for Muhammad sallallahu and for us. This is why all of the prophets, they, they already knew. In one hadith, the prophet sallallahu wasallam said, that I am a slave of Allah. I was already the seal of prophets, was Adam salam was still a lump of clay. Meaning when he wasn't even created, I was already the seal of prophets. Allah had already decreed that. And then he goes, Now let me tell you how this all started. And he gave, he said, I am the answer of the prayer of my father, Ibrahim alayhi salam. I am the glad tidings of Isa alayhi salam, And I am the result of the dream that my mother Amina saw just before she gave me birth. So this gives us a background to what we'll be discussing inshaAllah in the following sessions. Regarding the Bible, the Torah, the Gospel, uh, the Injil, and the Psalms of David, some of the Hindu scriptures, Zoroastrian scriptures, we're going to go into them and see what do they say regarding the coming of the Prophet Muhammad Despite them being changed, we're going to see the distortion, we're going to see how it's been twisted, and we're going to see some of the things that are already still present, despite all of the changes. And we're going to see what the Quran and the hadith also say in regards to this as well. However, next two weeks, we won't be having a session, it'll be after that as well inshallah. So not next week, the week after the third Tuesday, inshallah, we'll continue. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the tawfiq wa akhiru da'wana. And alhamdulillahi rabbil alam.